Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the On Deeper Reflection podcast. I had done the uh, philosophical diversions episode on free will. I asked you, do you want to hear this kind of stuff? And uh, there was a lot of outpouring of positive emotions and feelings towards uh, that that particular topic base. And uh, so I'm going to do uh, one more. We'll, we'll have these occasionally interspersed between the clinical goodness in fact, uh, these might roll out to a separate podcast that I'll keep within the MCRIT feed, but you'll be hearing more about that uh, later on in the year. Today, we'll talk a little bit more about free will, just to respond to some of the questions and thoughts that were raised in the comments section of the previous episode. And then we'll learn about two new concepts, uh, the idea of naive realism and the fundamental attribution error. But before we get there, uh, two quick ads. Today's episode is brought to you by the Reanimate Conference, uh, the premier resuscitative ECMO conference. Uh, we are almost sold out. I know, in general, folks like to wait until the last uh, six to eight weeks. Well, we're here now. Uh, it's going to be September 17th and 18th in San Diego. And uh, if you don't buy a ticket now, uh, it's very likely you will again be forced onto the waiting list. So go to reanimateconference.com if you're interested. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you probably don't want it. But if you do and you've just been waiting until the last minute, uh, now is the last minute. Buy your tickets or it will be soon sold out. And then the RCM is back in stock. It's back on sale. I haven't promoted the book for a long while because I did not want people to be trapped on a waiting list for the book to come. Uh, we are uh, fully now stocked back up according to the publisher and we are good to go to really advertise this again. Uh, this book was uh, four or five years of my life. Uh, Dave Borshoff, my my co-editor uh, as well. The authors were incredible. This is, I think, the book you want to have on every shift you go to. Uh, I use it all the time despite having edited it. I, I still go and refer to it to just make sure that the important points that are easy to forget on uh, relatively rare conditions are are brought back to the front of my mind. So uh, the Resuscitation Crisis Manual, the Recess Crisis Manual is uh, a just-in-time checklist for all of the critical emergencies you'll see in the ED and the ICU. Uh, if you're interested in that book, then just go to recesscrisismanual.com. All right, let's get to the show. So in podcast 246, we did an episode on free will or the absence thereof, at least from the perspective of libertarian free will, uh, that your acts are determined by a whole bunch of factors that go into the moment of decision. But at that moment, you really have no other choice but to make the decision that you're going to make. And if you went back and the universe was exactly the same, even down to the level of randomness, you'd make the exact same decision again. Now, uh, I got a bunch of people dissenting from that view in the comments, and in addition, uh, by emails sent to me separately. But almost to a person, those disagreements were at a level that I was not discussing. And what do I mean by this? They say, well, look, I just decided to write you this email. That was a conscious choice. I made that choice, and therefore I have free will. But that wasn't the level the podcast was talking about. I, well, I was about to say, I agree with you that we are making conscious decisions, but even that is fraught. Uh, <laughs> most of the decisions we think are being made consciously 
are not. But let's let's put that aside for a second because that's not what I was arguing in the last podcast. Let's say for the sake of this particular moment of discussion that I thoroughly agree with you, that we are capable of making conscious decisions on an everyday basis, that I could decide whether to raise my right arm or left arm right now, and I am consciously making the choice, oh, I just raised my right arm. Um, that's not the point that I was making in the last time. It's, it's, it's a level further back. Uh, yes, for the purpose of this, you're making a conscious decision to make, raise your right arm, but the consciousness itself is what's determined. What built your consciousness is a determined factor. It's, it's built from the brain. And therefore, even though you are consciously making the decision to raise your right arm, you couldn't have made any other decision because the consciousness that made it was determined. That's the level you need to pull back to to really get the idea of why there's no libertarian free will. Because the, the thing that is making the decisions, is in itself determined. So, so think about it that way, and I think uh, the points become clearer. Now, I, I, I was hedging before because I said, well, even the idea that the consciousness itself is making decisions, uh, albeit determined ones, um, may not be true. And what it's turning out more and more we're finding from neuroscientific studies is that the consciousness has a much smaller role in decision-making than we may intuit. That many of the decisions we're making are already made prior to them being even brought to the level of conscious thought. And then the question becomes, what is the point of consciousness? I mean, this is what's called, I think by David Chalmers, as the hard problem of consciousness, which is not the how, but the why. Why do we have consciousness? What, what's its evolutionary purpose? Why is this beneficial? And what's coming out more and more is that the real role of your consciousness is to act as a press agent. Now, what do I mean by that? That what your consciousness is actually doing is taking the decisions your brain has already made and justifying them, giving them a spin, if you will, that it's going to be able to sell the reasons why. Now, there's been experiments that have been done. I mean, numerous experiments of decisions that are altered by the experimenters. Uh, for instance, if you cross a bridge, just a benign bridge, you know, like 10 feet up over a pond, and at the end of the bridge is uh, a a person involved in the experiment with a clipboard uh, who's reasonably attractive uh, for whatever gender mix uh, works for the people participating in the study. And, uh, and they've just crossed over a bridge that, that doesn't really uh, get you going at all from the perspective of height and, and uh, uh, you know, looking down scares you. Um, there's going to be a base rate of actually asking the person at the end of the bridge uh, for their phone number uh, to, to possibly go out for a cup of coffee and, and talk and see if uh, there's some relatability. And if you do the same experiment over a bridge that makes you scared, you look down, it's, it's you know, hundreds of feet up, uh, a much higher rate. And if you ask that person, well, uh, why do you ask that person out? 
uh, they're, they're going to say, oh, because well, I, I found them interesting. There's some just about them. Um, and, and you'll obviously be totally unaware that, that going over the bridge, having that adrenal surge, and then linking that surge to talking to the person at the other end of the bridge uh, may have had an influence. You'll have no idea about that. Uh, you, you know, if you ask them, their consciousness has no awareness. But uh, there's, there's a significant increase in that rate. And the reason why is your consciousness doesn't know. It's just going to spin it. Uh, there's been studies on subliminal messaging uh, demonstrating that you'll have a market change in the choices you make, and yet you'll have no awareness of the consciousness spins decisions that are being made at a deeper level. So that, that's, that's interesting to me, that many of our decisions are probably made at a subconscious level, and yet our consciousness, its job is to say, oh, well, I decided to do that. Now I must justify it. I must figure out a reason. Okay, two quick thought experiments before we go on to the next topic. Uh, this is the stuff, uh, it's been brought to the fore of my mind, uh, uh, bringing back from uh, undergrad time. Uh, the first one is the, uh, the thought experiment of the body swap. And you've seen this in countless movies, uh, mostly they're comedies, and the idea of just people uh, getting switched with bodies. You know, uh, you're in someone else's body with your mind still intact. Well, just think about that for a second. What is actually going to get swapped? What, what's going to come over to the other body? I mean, we, when we see these movies, we see someone come in with their mind fully intact to the new body, hence the new brain. And, and how would that work? What would come if this body swap experiment happened? Um, if the body you're going into, the brain is still there, uh, well, now, that's a brain built with all the memories, all the recollections, all of the building of consciousness of the existing body. How, how would that work? You, the only way you can actually make this happen, and you actually could if we had the science to do it, would be a brain swap, right? Like, if we could do a brain swap, well, now you're talking. Now we could have those comedies work. But if you're going into someone else's body, hence their brain, what would actually come? Obviously, I, I think you'd have to agree, nothing, nothing would come because how would something come? What would be the thing? Now, some people might say, well, it's a soul swap. Okay, well, then what happens to the existing memories, the existing laid down uh, dispositions to respond, the existing generated, generators of consciousness? What? Well, the soul comes in, but the brain is still there. So so what does the brain do and what does the soul do? This is interesting. You could take this a step further. This is the second thought experiment. And, um, you know, I, I try to keep any uh, of my own internal beliefs about religion out of the podcast for obvious reasons. But I think this one's safe. Let's, let's just talk about this for a second. And I don't think I'll offend anyone. So some of my listeners believe in an afterlife. They believe that um, after this time uh, uh, in the mortal life, uh, there's, there's something more that we go to. And now some people just think of this as a nebulous concept, the joining to some higher power in the universe. And uh, that, that's not as interesting from the thought experiment perspective right now. So let's, let's just deal with the, the people believe, that believe there's an afterlife where you go intact. You, you go intact. Well, what goes? What, what makes it up there. Because when I, we think about this on a superficial level, well, it's us, right? It's, it's, our, it's our mind, our consciousness, our memories, our, uh, our experience. But how does that work? What, what's actually 
going? Is there some separate entity that takes all the things that our brain is doing right now, our memories, our experiences, and takes it with us? And, and how does that really work? What if right now you're walking around, you're at a high-functioning level as a nurse, a paramedic, a doctor, and then, and I hope this doesn't happen, but you get hit in the head uh, by uh, something falling out from the sky, a piano dropped from a building, and you have devastating brain damage. And you live in that state, near vegetative state, for another 15 years until you finally die. Well, what goes? Do you get rewound to 15 years prior before the head trauma and now the the quote-unquote real you goes with those memories intact? Uh, The 15 years just get erased? Do you go as this person in a vegetative state and that's your afterlife from that point on? Is you're now eternally in a vegetative state in some afterlife? What point? Uh, if you get Alzheimer's and now are markedly diminished from the person you once were, do you get restored? And if you do get restored, to what point? At the very beginnings of the dementia, when you were still pristine? But what about the memories and experiences you had uh, in that gray phase where you know you were just a little bit out of it uh, from uh, your recollections and perceptions of reality? Do those count? Well, how does this work? I don't know. Uh, when I talk to people, most of the time they haven't thought about this. Uh, they just say, oh, I'm going to get to see all of my loved ones and, and have a, a great afterlife. But who? Who does? We are constantly changing. Uh, you know, in, in meditative and Buddhist uh, thought processes, uh, the idea is that there is no self. And this is one of the inroads to that. Who? who what is yourself? You know, we, we all think of ourselves as this ironclad, irreducible personhood. We, we, we are us. That's who we are. But the us is totally influenced by our brains. And, and selective brain damage, uh, uh, tumors, uh, masses could radically change our personality. And then you will have that same intuitive feeling that this is you, that obviously this is, this is who you are. And yet that person could be very different than you were three years ago. You could be an entirely different person and have no intuitive perception that who you are is completely different. All right. Uh, that, that's just something to make you think. I'd love to hear more about it in the comments if you're interested in conversing more about these ideas. But let's, let's go on. If this kind of thing interests you, there's a, a very good short book just published, I think just published a couple weeks ago, called Conscious by Annika Harris. And uh, I think she did a, a great job of, of just like, you know, gently... Uh, uh, exposing you to a lot of the scientific ideas that go into um, the current debates on consciousness and the philosophical um, musings that go alongside them. I, I think it's worthwhile to read. It's very quick. I mean, you can read the book in like two hours. Um, so if you want to pick that up at a library and check it out, I think you'll like it. Uh, she also did a podcast on Sam Harris's uh, podcast on consciousness that's well worth a listen. Uh, I think it's really well done and um, and they're a married couple, so it's interesting to hear their dynamic as well. So uh, you could check that out. I know he's a very galvanizing uh, figure. Uh, a lot of the religious folks uh, do not care for him at all, but this one is is totally benign from that perspective. So if you're, you know, willing to to go to a place where uh, you you might have been offended in the past with the knowledge that he's not going to say anything that's going to piss you off, you might want to check out that episode. And I will link both of those things in the show notes for this episode. All right, but let's get through the two new concepts uh, that we'll talk about today. 
The first one is naive realism or naive reality. Now, it's funny. I, I was exposed to this, at least by name, uh, the, the concept of naive reality in both of the fields I studied, psychology and philosophy. And while the uh, two concepts in those uh, fields are are similar, they're really uh, disparate ideas in many ways. And the one we're going to talk about today is solely the psychological aspects of the idea of naive reality. So naive reality is the belief that we are seeing the world objectively, that when we see events, if another person observed them as well and they had good memory and they weren't biased, that they would see the exact same events the same way as us, that there is some objective truth. And all of us, I think, at some level believe this. It's almost impossible not. Our entire sensory apparatus is predicated on the idea that we're seeing things in a objective fashion. The first study in psychology to examine this idea of naive reality uh, was actually, uh, <laughs> it was a great study, um, I believe it was by Ross, and they looked at two sets of fans for college football, and, and one of the teams was Princeton. I'm forgetting the second one. I want to say Yale. And they videotaped a game or filmed it and showed it to both sets of fans. And both sets who were seeing the exact same game declared that the referees were incredibly biased against their side. Uh, that the same things, when viewed by two sets of people with differing beliefs, revealed a very different vision of objective reality. Now, I'm sure you've witnessed this in your own life as well. You and your spouse or significant other uh, see the same set of events or, or remember the same argument and yet have wildly differing recollections. And you surely say, well, at least in your head, if you want to not start another fight, uh, this person is just misremembering. Uh, they, they just, you know, they probably were really upset and they just have completely forgotten what actually happened. Uh, and that might be the case, but it's just as likely that they are remembering uh, with perfect clarity and they just have a different vision of events. Now, this is why you could have a situation in which uh, you had a disagreement with a consultant, for instance, and you've been quite deliberate as tensions rise of lowering your voice, uh, even moving to a whisper as you continue to disagree. And then you get in your email box a, uh, a message from your, your boss saying that this person has written to them saying you screamed at them uh, at the top of your lungs about the uh, situation that you were disagreeing about. And, and now you have an absolute knowledge because you're being deliberate at the time that you were whispering uh, quite deliberately and therefore impossible that you could have yelled. And yet this person is not making things up. They actually remember being screamed at. Now, why? Well, because uh, a lot of people interpret or uh, will go away from any situation in which someone disagrees with them as being yelled at. And that's how they remember it. That is their 
True recollection, they're not lying. Uh, naive reality it is the basis for how these things take place. We filter our perceptions and recollections through our unique vision, our unique mindset. Uh, this is very similar to a, a great word, uh, which is Umwelt, German word, spelled with a W, but you pronounce it V. And it's the idea that you cannot understand the world of a tiger unless you're capable of sensing the world through the mind of a tiger. That it's all well and good to imagine ourselves in that role, in a different head. Uh, but we do so. We do this imagining with our own naive picture of reality. And that picture of reality would be entirely different if you were actually in the head of a tiger. Well, I think our fellow uh, women and men have an Umwelt as well. And we can't imagine the world unless we're actually in their head, that we are seeing two different realities. There is no objective reality. Uh, if you want to see a, a beautiful example of how this could play out, um, there's a Black Mirror episode where the entire world is being recorded constantly. You know, obviously memory has gotten so cheap and so easy to the point where you could record your entire day and then play it back for people as you disagree with them with the thought that if they just saw the video, they would agree with you, that they're obviously misremembering. But what we know from naive reality is if they watch that same video, they will continue to disagree with you, that they will continue to have a completely different vision, that the problem is not inadequate memory in many cases. It's a different Umwelt. Okay, so that's naive reality. Maybe it'll help you with your next fight with your significant other. All right, the last thing we'll talk about today, fundamental attribution error. This is uh, a, a foundational concept in social psychology. And it's the idea that in general, we tend to attribute our own behavior that is undesirable to external factors. It's the situation that is forcing us to do something uh, that's not necessarily ideal. And when we look at the actions of others, we tend to attribute things we don't like to disposition, to internal characteristics, not the external situation. So we underestimate the internal in our own bad actions, and we overestimate the internal in the actions of others, i.e., if you do something wrong, it's because you're bad. If I do something wrong, it's because you're bad. So that's the idea. Now, you see this play out all the time, and I'm sure it's happened to you constantly unless you're truly aware of this. When you see that case of the heroin user who's now been here 18 times in the past two weeks uh, for uh, nodding out and getting naloxone in the field and coming in, and this person's not necessarily the nicest of the addicts you treat in your ED, and in fact, quite belligerent. And you just, uh, whether overtly or internally, just shake your head and say, wow, what a poor example of the human race. You are committing fundamental attribution error. And, and don't think I'm preaching because I, I fall into the same trap all the time. But what I want you to start thinking is that internal factors have 
such a small, small role in how that person got to where they are. That you, in the exact same circumstances at any point in the lifeline of that person, if you were were switched in, there's an excellent chance, almost a certainty, that you would be in exactly the same place. That that person is there because of the external factors of their life, their childhood, the people around them, and very little of it is due to dispositional factors. Uh, That anyone we want to uh, look down upon, if we were in the same set of life circumstances at any point, would probably be in the exact same place. And that uh, there's probably far more attribution to our own bad actions in terms of disposition than we think, and there's definitely uh, a good likelihood that we are just seeing someone on a bad day or in a bad set of circumstances, and we probably should give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, I talked about this on uh, MRAP as well, but I wanted to get it out there uh, for the listeners, because I know the the Venn diagram overlap is, is not anywhere near perfect between those two shows. So there you go. A little more on free will, naive reality, and the fundamental attribution error. Please tell me what you think, your thoughts, your comments. I really loved uh, the comments, uh, the amount and the quality of the comments we got in the last Philosophical Diversion show. So hopefully we will continue that trend. Scott Weingart for the On Deeper Reflection podcast. And bye-bye. Hey there, On Deeper Reflection listeners. Before I disappear, in addition to podcasting, I am a physician and clinician performance coach. And that means I work with clients to deal with issues of burnout, to deal with issues of not being as happy as they'd like at their job, but also on the positive side. I work with people that are already performing at an amazing level, but they want to increase their productivity, their performance, their joy in life, their what we call eudaimonia, their flourishing. And so from all these different bents in a wide variety of possible situations, Uh, I could work with you to make your life better. If that sounds interesting, if that sounds appealing, if it sounds like something that would make your life better, both in your job and outside it, then get in touch at mcrit.org slash coach. That's E-M-C-R-I-T dot org slash coach. And that'll take you to the page where you'll see all the variety of coaching that I offer and how to take the next step to make your life better. So mcrit, E-M-C-R-I-T dot org slash coach. Bye. Bye.